um, our uh, study through Second Corinthians last week, and so we'll pick it up this morning in uh, chapter one, verse eight of Second Corinthians. We spent about a year in the Gospel of Mark, and um, of course we had left off in 1 Corinthians when we started Mark, and so now we're going back to 2 Corinthians. And I don't know that I'll do this every week, but it wouldn't hurt, and that is to go back over the background of 2 Corinthians, um, you know, because it's important to understand why Paul wrote this letter in the first place. It really gives us some some background, a backdrop, if you will, uh, to the reason that he says what he does in this epistle. And Paul had spent about 18 months in Corinth, um, which is significant in the fact that Paul didn't typically spend that much time in one place. In uh, you know Ephesus, of course, he spent two and a half years. But other than that, Paul basically spent like a day or two, a week, a month, at the most, in each place. But here in Corinth, Paul had spent a year and a half with these people. He was personally invested in them and in the planting of this church. And I think anything that we're personally invested in means more to us than something that maybe we don't have a lot of personal investment into. For example, a house that you built yourself means a lot more to you than one that you just bought. You know, uh, our children mean so much to us because not only did they come from us, but they have been with us their entire life. We've poured into them. We've taught them everything they know. We have poured our life into them. We've spent a lot of money on them, right? I mean, we are personally invested in in those kids, and, and they mean a lot to us. And these were Paul's kids. This was Paul's church that he had planted spent a year and a half with these people. But seemingly the day that he left, this church just went out of control. It went downhill. False teachers had come into this church and had basically turned the church against Paul. And these false teachers were a little different than some of the other false teachers that Paul addresses in other letters that he writes to churches. These false teachers weren't bringing so much false doctrine as they were bringing false accusations, personal attacks against Paul. They basically came in, they said, you know that Paul, I mean, he's not really called to be an apostle. I don't think he's really called to be a teacher. He, he's all wet. And not to mention that, you know, he's kind of scrawny and ugly and he's got a crooked nose and he doesn't see very well. I mean, come on. And They, they just began to really trash Paul. And I think the thing that probably hurt Paul the most out of that was that these people should have known better because he spent so much time with them. But they didn't bother to, you know, if they had a phone, pick up the phone and call him or write a letter or send a homing pigeon or whatever they did, you know. They didn't bother to do any of that stuff. They just assumed it was true. And those kind of attacks hurt the most. You know what I mean? When people that you have spent a lot of time with, when people that know you well 
just believe stuff about you that they ought to know isn't true. And they don't even bother to come to you and say, you know, I heard this. Is this true? I mean, I don't think it is, but I heard this thing. I heard this this report. And, and then, you know, you have an opportunity to say, no, that isn't true. Absolutely not. Or, well, yeah, it is true, but, you know, can you help me through this? Or can you pray for me instead of just, you know, trashing me and, and turning on me in a time when I might really need you? And that's what they did with Paul. They just totally said, yep. Paul, you're worthless. We we know that you spend a lot of time and effort and energy here, but we're going to believe what these total strangers say about you. And you can just imagine the heartache that Paul would have been feeling. And so Paul sent Titus to them to try to work through some of these difficulties. And I think the reason he sent Titus was because he couldn't handle it himself. It was so beyond him. It was so hurtful to him that he's like, Titus, you've got to just go and deal with this. And, and come back and tell me what's going on over there. Because it's just a mess. And so Titus spent some time there. He came back and he told Paul, look, we've, we've worked through most of the problems. I think I've salvaged your ministry there. The church seems to be going okay. And that's when Paul wrote this letter, this second letter to the church at Corinth, which in fact is probably the fourth letter that Paul wrote, but it's the second letter that we have in our possession, and that's why it's called Second Corinthians. And last week, you remember that we talked a lot about suffering. And if you weren't here, I encourage you to pick up the CD or go online uh, on the on our website. You can listen to uh, past messages. Listen to the to the study last week. Give you some more background information. And it will give you um, sort of the theme of this whole book, which is suffering. The suffering that Paul had experienced. And, and last week we, we talked about three truths about suffering. We, we saw that God allows it in our life. That, that's, that's foundational in our theology, is that God allows suffering. We saw that God comforts us in it. And so even though we're going through it, we have a comforter. We have one that comes alongside of us and helps us through it. And then we saw that God uses it. And He uses it in two ways. He uses it to make us usable, to mold us and shape us into His image. And we saw that God uses it to draw us unto Himself. The the people that have suffered the most are the most usable by God. The people that have suffered the most are the closest to God. And so we saw all those things. And it's interesting, of the 107 words that are used in verses 1 through 7, 10 of them are the word comfort. Paul used the word comfort 10 times. 10% of the words that he used in that section last week, comfort. Because in our suffering, which is sure to come, God comforts us so that we can comfort others. There is comfort to be found. And so we pick it up in verse 8 this morning. Our text this morning will be 2 Corinthians 1, verses 8 through 11. Let's uh, pray before we get into the study. Father, we ask that you would open the eyes of our heart, God, as we sang this morning. That, Lord, we could hear from you. Lord, there's so many things that would plug our ears. Busyness of life, our own preconceived ideas, our own sin. So many things that can cloud our vision. 
plug up our ears. But God, we want you to open our eyes, Lord. We want you to open our ears so that we can hear and see clearly, distinctly from your Holy Spirit this morning. God, I pray against the, the devil, God, that would want to come in and, and rob us of what you want to share with us this morning. He'd want to distract our minds. Or he'd want us to start thinking about what we're doing this afternoon or what's going on in our life. But God, I pray that we could just really focus on what your Spirit is saying to us this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, in our text, in these four verses, we're going to see four things. First of all, in verses 8 and the beginning of verse 9, we're going to see Paul's description of suffering. And then at the end of verse 9, we're going to see another purpose for suffering. God's purpose for suffering. And then verse 10, God's deliverance in suffering. And then in verse 11, the church's obligation during suffering. And so four things. First of all, Paul's description of suffering. Look at verse 8. For we do not want you to be ignorant, brethren. This is something that Paul says a lot. I don't want you to be ignorant about this. I don't want you to be unaware of that. I don't want you to be without knowledge in this situation. There's a lot of ignorance. You don't have to, you know, be alive very long to realize there's a lot of ignorance in things. And a lot of us are are ignorant about things. That's not a, necessarily a put-down as so much it is that we need to learn, that we need to allow God to teach us these things. And Paul says, I don't want you to be ignorant about this. The trouble which came to us in Asia, that we were burdened beyond measure, above strength, so that we despaired even of life. Yes, we had the sentence of death in ourselves. I mean, isn't this a rosy picture Paul paints here? Isn't this just such a, a positive message? Not really. Paul says, I don't want you to be ignorant, you guys. I don't want you to be unaware of the personal experience that I've had with suffering. Paul's talking about suffering there in the first seven verses. Now he says, look, I can personally attest to you that suffering is real. And it's really, really hard. In fact, it's so hard that I was burdened beyond measure. Above strength. So that I despaired even of life. In fact, I had a death sentence. I felt as if I was going to die. The specific trial that Paul is speaking of here, we're not sure of. There's different opinions about it. Some people think it was a physical illness that Paul had. You know, he talks about that thorn that he had in his flesh. Could be that. Some people believe it was the stoning that he received in Lystra. Remember where he was left for dead in Acts 14? Some people believe it was the riot that happened in Ephesus where the ministry that he had spent two and a half years planting looked like it was going to crumble in a matter of minutes as this riot happened and it looked like everything that he had built there was going to be destroyed. That's in Acts 19. No one really knows. Don't really have a clue. Um, I, if I was going to lean towards something, I would say it was the stoning in Lystra because of the verbiage and the wording that Paul uses here, talking about that he thought he was going to die, you know. 
But that really doesn't matter. What really matters is the fact that Paul describes for us suffering in his own life, which tells us that even the most powerful men and women of God go through difficult times. And we too will go through difficult times, trials in our life. And Paul didn't want them to be ignorant of this fact of life. This is a fact of life. That especially as believers in Jesus, especially as Christians, this life, this life that you're living right now, is full of suffering and difficulty and tribulation. And Paul says that the burden, that the trial, that the difficulty he was going through was more than he could handle. Now this, this is a myth buster. Paul does us a big favor right here. And he busts a myth for us. Have you ever seen that show, Mythbusters on Discovery Channel? It's a great show. You know, these guys, they try to take common myths and show us how they're really not true. Like I saw him one time, um, bust the myth that if you have your tailgate down, you'll save gas mileage, right? You see all these guys driving around, tailgate down, or they have the net. You know, they get really fancy, and they put the net up, all because they think they're saving on gas. And so they bought, or borrowed, or whatever, two Ford F-150s, exactly alike, same model, you know, brand new, filled them up with gas, and drove them across the Mojave Desert. One with the tailgate up, one with the tailgate down. Well, actually, the one with the tailgate down ran out of gas first. And so they busted the myth that if you have your tailgate down, you'll save on gas mileage. And Paul here busts a myth for us. And that myth is this. And, and you know, to raise your hand if you want, but how many of you have heard this? God never gives you more than you can handle. I've heard that so many times. In fact, my neighbor just said it to me the other day. God never gives us more than we can handle. Well, Paul says the exact opposite right here. He does give us more than we can handle. Well, this myth, it is rooted in Scripture, but it's taken out of context. Where this myth comes from, this idea that God never gives you more than you can handle, is in 1 Corinthians 10.13. And uh, you don't need to turn there, but in 1 Corinthians 10.13, Paul says this, No temptation has overtaken you except such as is common to man. But God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation will also make the way of escape that you may be able to bear it. And so people say, look, God doesn't give you more than you can handle. That's the proof text for that. But Paul is talking about temptation there, not tribulation, not suffering. Certainly, God isn't going to give us more temptation than what we can handle. That wouldn't be fair, right? If we were to say, yeah, I mean, I was tempted beyond what I was able, so I had to sin. I had to give into it. No, God does not give us more than we can handle in regard to temptation. But certainly, and I think Paul is case in point, I think our lives, our case in point, that God gives us more difficulty than what we can handle. And I think this idea that God never gives us 
more than we can handle, really bums people out. Because when they're in the midst of something that's bigger than they can handle, that's more than they can bear, they get really depressed because now it's like, well, this is way more than I can handle, but I can't say that because I was told that God never gives you more than you can handle. And you see how discouraging that is. Then you feel like, well, God must not love me very much, or His promises aren't true, or, you know, He's a liar, or whatever. God will certainly put us in difficult circumstances that are more than we can handle. He did for Paul. He will for you. Paul says here that he was burdened beyond measure. I mean, that is more than he can handle, right? The the wording there, beyond measure, it means something that's overloaded. It's like an overloaded ship riding low in the water. It's about to sink. Or a pack animal that has so much weight on it that it collapses under the weight and it can't get up. That's the idea there. Paul was so burdened, so loaded down, that he couldn't even get up. He says that we despaired even of life. We had the sentence of death in ourselves. Paul's despair was so deep that he was literally without a way of escape. And he felt there was no way out, no exit, and that he might as well die. Paul was being crushed under this unbearable weight, hopelessly, helplessly awaiting death. And so the first thing we see here is Paul's description of suffering. And it tells us, that there is suffering, and that a lot of times it will be more than we can handle. It will be like a death sentence for us. But there's a purpose in it. If that was just a bleak picture of life, if that was just the end of the story, then, you know, it would be real depressing. But Paul says there's a purpose in it. And read with me the end of verse 9. That we should not trust in ourselves, but in God who raises the dead. And last week we learned two purposes for suffering. That it makes us usable and that it draws us closer to the Lord. Well, here we see a third purpose. And that is that we would not trust in ourselves. Our tendency is to trust in our own abilities, in our own resources. And God needs to remove those things at times for us to trust in Him. For us to learn to not trust in ourselves. Because we like to trust in ourselves. There's comfort in that. There's freedom in that. You know, when you don't need to ask for help. You know? Because you know, man, if I ask this person for help, now I'm sort of like obligated to them, and, you know, they're going to tell me what to do, or, you know, that, and, and there's a lot of pride in that. And so we like to be able to, to do things on our own. We like to be able to be independent, right? And I think especially in the area that we live, there's a lot of that mentality here. It's a lot of prideful kind of, you know, pull yourself up by your own bootstraps. I'm a, I'm a man's man. I'm a cowboy. You know, I, I can fix my tractor. I can fix my truck. I can fix the fence. You know, I can fix my life. Fix it. I'm a fixer. And... The, the fact is, is that God has to totally root that pride out of our lives. That we would not trust in ourselves, 
that we would trust in Him. And what's a great way to do that? Suffering, right? Just pull that carpet right out from under you, remove all of that stuff that you trusted in and that you were prideful about and that you were relying upon and you're now flat on your face with nothing to trust but the Lord. And the bank account's empty. And you, you've got to rely upon the Lord. Or, you know, the, your, the relationship is, is basically over. And you've got to cry out to the Lord. The job situation has gotten so far out of control that there's no way to salvage it. And you know you're going to lose your job. And, and so it's not about your skill anymore. You can't say, well, I'm indispensable to this company. They'll never let me go. Well, all of a sudden, you became indispensable. You became dispensable real quick. And God is teaching you to trust in Him and not in yourself. And I think a great illustration of this is Jacob. In the book of Genesis, he, here was a guy whose whole life he had depended upon his own intelligence, his own ability to get out of situations, his own ability to connive and deceive people. And he was really good at it. And it got him a long way. Even his birth, you know, he was sort of a picture of his whole life as he, you know, comes out clinging to the heel of Esau. You know, it's kind of like, well, you, you, you might be born first, but it's going to be on my terms. You know, I'm coming out right behind you, you know. And the thing is, is that Jacob was a man that was completely and totally filled with his own self and his own ability to do things. And God had to rid him of that. And God came to him one night and basically said, look, Jacob, you've come to the end of yourself. You've got your brother Esau on one side that's coming after you, or at least you think he is, and I like the fact you think he is. And you think he's going to kill you. He actually brought him gifts, but in Jacob's mind, he was going to kill him. So you got your brother over here. Then you've got your uncle Laban, your father-in-law Laban. You know, in those days, you could have an uncle and a father-in-law at the same time. You know, and they, uh, they're not happy with you. You got nowhere to run, nowhere to hide. Are you, are you ready to give it up to me? Are you ready to trust in me? Not really. I'm going to fight with you all night long. And they wrestled and they fought. And Jacob was depending on himself. And I'm not going to give up. No, never. And finally he does. And he says, Lord, I'm not going to let go until you bless me. And God blessed him. But God touched his hip in such a way that Jacob would never walk the same again. He would be forever reminded of that encounter with God. He would be forever reminded that he couldn't stand on his own strength. He would be forever reminded that it wasn't about his ability. God had to do that in his life. And God has to do that in our life. And he uses suffering to make it happen. And so there is a purpose in it. And you guys, if we'll remember those purposes behind suffering, that God is going to use it. He's going to use it to make me more like Him, 
to make me more usable? As we talked about last week, who would you rather talk to? Someone that's suffered when you're suffering or someone that's never suffered? When you're suffering, you want to talk to somebody that's suffered, man. You want to talk to somebody that's born with a silver spoon in their mouth and everything just went their way their whole life. You want someone that's suffered. And so if you want to be a powerful vessel for God, you're going to suffer. You're going to go through it because then God's going to use you to, to touch others' lives. And so the more you suffer, the more usable you are. The more you suffer, the closer you are to God because another purpose is God uses it to bring us into fellowship with Him, into close intimacy with Him. And then a third purpose, as we see here, is that God uses it to make us trust Him. And you guys, when there's a purpose behind something, it makes it a lot easier to go through it. I think the reason why a lot of kids struggle in school, you know, is because they don't understand, they don't see when they're ever going to use that particular thing common complaint, right? When am I ever going to use this class? I remember in eighth grade, they were out of electives or something, and I got thrown into this class, uh, science fiction. And I think they only offered it in my school one time, and I'd never heard of this class before. But it was like they couldn't think of anything else. How about science fiction, you know? And, and I hate science fiction. And I get thrown into this class with like, you know, forgive me if you love science fiction, but, you know, just like these science fiction nerds, you know, Star Trek guys, you know, and I'm just like, oh, man, you know, and more pocket protectors than, you know, I really wanted to deal with. And you would think as a kid you would like that class because all we did was like watch episodes of Star Trek and, you know, whatever shows and read these books, you know, and but I hated going to that class because I didn't see a purpose for it in my life. But when we see a purpose, when we see a purpose in things, it makes it a lot easier to go through it. Think, okay, Lord, you've got a purpose behind this. There's a reason for it. And and you're going to you're going to work this out in my life. And so maybe you're going through difficulties right now. And maybe instead of embracing it, you've been fighting against it. You know, like Paul, the Lord told him, you know, why are you kicking against the goats? It's not really smart. You know, the goat was that sharp object that they would, you know, just sort of touch to the back of the leg of the cattle to get them moving, you know. And it doesn't take much, you know, just a little prodding. Okay, I get the idea. But if you start kicking against it, I mean, that's sort of counterproductive. And we do that a lot. And God says, look, just embrace this thing you're going through because I've got a plan. Do you understand that about the Lord, that He has a plan? I think a lot of times women struggle with their husbands because they just don't really think the guy's got a plan. Right? It's like when you're lost. And he doesn't want to stop for directions. And you're pretty certain he's lost. He doesn't want to admit it. You're mad because you don't think he has a plan. You know, if he had a map out or if he had MapQuest, you know, or if he had one of those those cool GPSs they have now for cars, 
then you would probably be, okay, he's got a plan. He knows what he's doing. But when he's just, you know, sort of flying by the seat of his pants, you know, and it's like uh, Chevy Chase, you know, European vacation. Look, kids, Big Ben, the parliament, you know, 14 times. I mean, by the 14th time of going around in circles, you're going, mm, no plan, and I'm going to have to start to, you know, do my, my own thing here. And then you start telling me he's know where he's going, he gets mad, you know, the vacation's ruined. Been there, done that. But, but the thing is, if you, if you, if he has a plan, you're okay with it. And it's the same with the Lord. Except we need to understand that God isn't like the husband who's lost. We might feel like we're lost, but God's got a plan. I mean, He is God, right? He knows what He's doing. I just said that to somebody the other day. It probably was a little bit prideful, but they were like questioning, you know, what I was doing. And there's this guy that doesn't even go to church here, but he was arguing with me. And I said, hey, dude, this ain't my first rodeo, man. I know what I'm doing here. Okay? I know what I'm doing. I know what I'm talking about. And I've been down this road with so many people so many times. I know what I'm talking about. And I think that's what the Lord says to us. Hey, Hello, this isn't my first rodeo. I've been like doing this for a long time now. I know what I'm doing. Okay? So just calm down, sit back, enjoy the ride. I mean, think about that. Think how ridiculous ridiculous it is for us to question the Lord. And He's seen everything. We say that. I've seen it all. We haven't seen it all. I mean, a lot of us haven't even, you know, seen Portland, you know. But, I mean... The Lord has seen it all. He knows all of it. And so we don't have to question Him. He's, he's bigger than we are. So it's something we really need to, to get through our minds. And so, um, I love this, this phrase at the end of verse uh, 9 here, who raises the dead. That we wouldn't trust in ourselves, but that we would trust in the Lord who raises the dead. Maybe that situation that you're going through right now, that you're questioning the Lord about, that you don't feel like has a, He has a plan about, that you're like, there's no way this is going to work out. It seems dead to you. But God can take that thing. He can breathe life into it, and He can raise it up once again. The power of His resurrection. The same power that resides, the same power that raised Jesus from the dead resides in us. So we have that, that power to, to tap into if we'll allow God to do it. If we'll give it over to Him. He'll do a lot better job. Say, Lord, I, I've come to the end of myself. I can't do this. I, I've got no ability. I've got no power. But I know You do. And I ask for the power of the resurrection. Here you go. You do it. You, you talk about the... Uh, you know, the art of delegation. You know, for a lot of us, it takes many years to learn how to delegate things. You know, if you're a leader or a boss, you know, it's something you really need to learn, the art of delegation. Well, as a Christian, we need to learn the art of delegation. It's called delegate to the Lord. Give it to Him. He'll do it. He'll do a lot better job. Well, a third thing that we see here in verse 10 is God's deliverance in suffering. God's deliverance. I'm not talking about the movie deliverance, but God's deliverance. 
who delivered us from so great a death and does deliver us in whom we trust that he will still deliver us. I love this because this is past, present, and future deliverance. Look at that. He says, who delivered us in the past and does deliver us in the future or in the present and will still deliver us in the future. The past, the present, and the future. God is faithful to bring us through difficult times. His past deliverance, you guys, really ought to to be an encouragement to us that He'll do it in the present. Whatever you're going through right now, try to remember some things that God has brought you through in the past. But that's the problem, is that we have really bad memories when it comes to that sort of thing. We just simply don't remember it. And it was like that thing that you just thought was going to ruin your life, you know, a year ago. The thing that just had you scraping your knuckles, you know. Your your lip was collecting gravel. And you're just, oh, man, it's over, man. And everything's going downhill. And and I quit, you know. And Well, now here it is a year later, and you can't even remember that thing. I think that's a testament to how good of a deliverer God is. That He brings us through that stuff, and then we can't even remember it. But it would do us well to remember it. To go, man, I remember that a year ago. That God brought me through that thing. And I thought that was going to ruin my life. I thought for sure we, we were going to lose the house. I thought for sure my job was, was, was going to be eliminated. But no, in fact, I, I got promoted. Or, you know, I, I thought this was, was going to be over. And maybe some of you are saying, well, yeah, I did think that. And it came to pass. It, my marriage did end. Or my job did end. I am bankrupt. Or... You know, I did lose that loved one or whatever. You think, well, what hope is there in that? God didn't deliver me in the past. Well, here's the thing. God will deliver you in the future. We have an ultimate deliverance that's coming. And that's the hope that we have to cling to. Because you know what? That physical illness that you have, that that ailment that you have may never go away. You might have that forever. And God may not see fit to to heal you. I remember my first day at Bible college. Come in as a lot of you know real zealous kids in Bible college, you know, and and uh, my eye you know sometimes looks a little wacky. I'm sure some of you have noticed that. And it gets red, and sometimes it kind of you know looks weird because it, it doesn't work, you know. And so my left eye, and they said, "What's wrong with your eye?" Well, I you know I explained the story to him. Lost it, you know, and at that time it's only been like a year. And he said, oh man, well the, the Lord wants to heal you, you know. And it's like, oh brother, you know, I've already been down this road, man. I've been, I've been prayed for a lot and, you know, I just really feel like God's got this for me. It is, it's, I'm going to be this way for a while. And, but, you know, of course, you know, he prays for me and, and, you know, whatever. But I think sometimes we, we have this idea that, well, there's just no way that you, you should have to deal with that for the rest of your life. Well, God may have that for you. Like Paul said, I prayed three times about the thorn in my flesh, and then I quit. God told me, showed me, this is going to be something that 
you know, you're going to have. So make it a friend or, or an enemy. What, what do you want to do? You know, you can either have an enemy here or you can have a friend because he's going to be with you for a while. And that's the, the thing that we have to, we've got to realize is that you might have that thing. You know, that, that marriage may be perpetually difficult forever. It may not get any better. I mean, you can only do what you can do. You can't change a person. Your job situation might not get much better. Your family may not like you ever again. Your your kids may never get along. You know, I mean, you just you, you, there's certain things that are just absolutely out of your control. Now, I, I think this is a good time to insert something that's important, and that is that we're not talking about suffering that you brought onto yourself. This isn't what Paul is talking about. And there's a lot of suffering that we just sort of brought on ourselves. And that, you know, you just got to deal with that. You know, we brought it on ourselves. And through our own stupidity and our own bad choices, you know, if you, if you make fi- bad financial decisions, you're, you're going to have to deal with those. You know, if, if you don't love your wife and if you don't uh, raise your kids right and you don't, you know, treat your husband the way you should, you know, you're probably not going to have very good home life. That's not suffering. That's just called repercussion. That's called, you know, every action has a reaction, right? But suffering is things that, man, they were just absolutely out of your control. You had nothing to do with them. They just came upon you. And they may not get any better. And in those situations, you guys, you have to look to the hope that's to come. The future is a lot brighter. This future hope should bring us encouragement for the present. We get to heaven, we're not going to have these problems anymore. We're not going to have difficulties in relationships. We're not going to have to worry about money. We're not going to have to worry about what people think, or what people said, or anything. It's going to be awesome. But we may not be there tomorrow, or the next day, or a year from now. might be here for a while. And you're going to have to deal with the things that you're dealing with. And they can either be your friend, or your foe. Fourth thing that we see is found in verses, or verse 11. He says, you also helping together in prayer for us that thanks may be given by many persons on our behalf for the gift granted to us through many. And so the church's obligation during suffering is the fourth thing that I want us to see. And what is that? Because I think sometimes in the church we look at people and we think man I've got to do something or what do I do and a lot of times maybe that's why you're not in ministry because you think man these things are just too hard I don't know what to do I, I can't help people it's overwhelming the thing is is that the greatest help that we can give people as a church as a body as a group of believers is intercessory prayer what Paul's talking about here. He says, the greatest way that you could help me, and that you did help me in that time, was intercessory prayer. 
What is intercessory prayer? It sounds kind of complicated. It sounds kind of, ooh, I mean, what is it? Well, it's simply praying for somebody else. That's all it is. Praying for somebody else. And I think, you know, prayer is something that for a lot of us we don't do very often. And then when we do it, it's about us, right? Lord, help me to get that new car. You know, help me to uh, qualify for that loan, you know. Um, Lord, I, I pray that you'd help me today at work. Or, Lord, help this, help that, Lord, and bless me, provide for my needs. It's a lot about us. And, and there's a place for that. And at the end, you know, we tag on, and Lord, uh, use me today. Amen. You know. And there's, there's, a place, there's a place for that. I'm not saying there's, there's not a place for that. But, again, it's this self-centered mentality that we have. And we've got to begin to, to think about others. Begin to pray for other people. Because there's great power in that. When you begin to pray. And, you know, like when we, we go on mission trips. You know, we take a group down to Mexico and we, we leave a list of names with, with you guys, with the church, the people that are in Mexico, and, and ask you to pray for them. And, and then when you're down there, you know, and, and things are just maybe not going well or whatever, and then all of a sudden God just gives you this strength or, you know, this, this thing works out that, that you didn't know if it was going to work out or not. You know, I mean, you get a flat tire, you know, right there at the border or whatever, and, and all of a sudden you just feel this surge of strength, you know, and you're thinking, man, I bet you somebody's praying for me right now, you know, or, or whatever that you're doing, you know, and maybe, you know, you ask for prayer, you know, because you're going in for a job interview or something, and you're not good at interviews, but you're there, and all of a sudden you just feel this peace and this strength, and you have this great interview, and you think, man, somebody was praying for me, whatever it is, and there's great power in prayer, intercessory prayer. Why? Does God need us? No. I, I can't really explain why there's power in it. I can't explain how it works. Because God already knows the situation. So we're not informing God about anything. God already wants to bless us, so we're not twisting His arm. Okay, alright. Fourteen of you down there praying for the same thing. I guess I'll do it. You know, it's... Have you ever heard people kind of describe prayer like that? It bugs me. Like God's like, okay, I'm waiting on 15. Anybody else? Sorry. Lord, why didn't you deliver? Well, there's only 14 people praying and my quota was 15. You didn't, didn't make it. Didn't ask enough people to pray, you know. I mean, I think that's just kind of a crazy concept about prayer. But I don't have anything better to offer you. I don't know why it works. But I know that God has asked us to do it. And so we do it. And I think there's just a, an awesome power in that, not only for the person that you're praying for, but for yourself. It just is an awesome thing to do, to, to pray for someone else. And, you know, when people ask you for prayer, pray for them right there. Because a lot of times you'll forget about it or write, write it down. You know, pray for them there and write it down. And, and 
you know, I think also ask for prayer. Don't be afraid to ask for prayer. You know, we have those tear outs on the bulletins. You know, ask for prayer. We have the prayer chain team and we have, uh, you know, times of prayer here at the church and, you know, take advantage of those things. Be prayed for and then pray for others. You know, ask the, you know, if, if you can't make it to the prayer group, ask, you know, come and ask me. Is, is there stuff that's going on that I can pray for? You know, pray for me. Pray for the leadership of this church. Pray for the things that we're doing. You know, as outreaches. And, you know, begin to, to really seek the Lord in those ways. Things beyond what really concerns you. That's what the body of Christ is all about. And so, four things that we uh, we learned this morning, that we saw. First of all, Paul's description of suffering, he basically tells us, look, there will be difficulty in your life. And I don't want you to be ignorant of that. And this idea that God will never give you more than you can handle, go ahead and wad that up and, you know, throw that out. Uh, second thing is God's purpose for suffering, that God's got a plan and a purpose and He's going to use it in your life. And then God's deliverance and suffering. God's going to pull you through and take you through just like He has so many other times. And if He's not going to pull you through on this side of heaven, when you get there, you'll be pulled through. And then the church's obligation during suffering to pray. It's a big thing. You know, and as we go through Second Corinthians, we're going to be talking a lot about these things, a lot about ministry. You know, we talked a lot about service and Mark. And now it's almost like we, we're, it's a great transition. We talked a lot about service, that Jesus was a servant, that He came not to be served, but to serve and give His life a ransom for many. And now we're sort of transitioning from serving and ministry into the difficulties of ministry. And I wish I could stand up here and tell you guys that God wants you to be healthy and wealthy. I I wish I could do that, but I can't because it's not biblical. I mean, I suppose I could, and I could probably write books about it, and I could probably fill up coliseums with it. You know, you're a champion, you know. God loves you and all this. I mean, but that is not what the Bible teaches. The Bible does not teach that you're going to be healthy and wealthy. Hey, you might be, and praise the Lord. But you might be poor and sick. Sick and tired. You know? And if, that doesn't mean that God's not blessing your life. It doesn't mean that God's hand is not in your life. The people that we see powerfully used by the Lord in the Bible were men and women who suffered a great deal. We don't think about them, well, you know, the Lord really wasn't blessing them or the Lord didn't use them. We forget about the suffering that these guys went through. What about Joseph? You know, look at Joseph's life. Read Genesis 37 through 50. Look at the life of Joseph. And on and on. Suffering. Difficulties. 
Look at Paul. I mean, he got saved, and his life basically went from on top of the world to pretty difficult. You know, getting beat, stoned, left for dead, starved, imprisoned, shipwrecked. You know, it wasn't this, this, uh, his biography, you know, wasn't real positive. Except that God used it all. Look how powerfully used he was. And so we say, Lord, I want to be like the Apostle Paul. Kind of like the disciples that came to Jesus and said, Jesus, can we sit on your right and left hand? Sure. If you're ready to drink the cup that I drink and be baptized with the baptism that I'm baptized with. Okay, we can do that. Okay. It's the cup of suffering and it's the baptism of death. Oh, well, let me um, chew on that for a little while and I'll get back to you. You know, that is how we're powerfully used by the Lord. And so we say, God, I want to be used by you. Well, that includes suffering and death and difficulty. We will be healthy and wealthy. But maybe not on this side of heaven. One day we're going to be really healthy. We're going to have a new body. One day we're going to be really wealthy. We'll have everything we ever wanted, needed, cared about. Heaven is going to be everything that's good about this earth. Everything that's good about this earth. Everything that you love. Everything that's important. Everything that's just makes you you know, want to jump for joy. That's that's what heaven's going to be like. But right now, you might be totally waylaid with suffering. But God's got a purpose. Amen? Let's stand and pray together. Father, we... Uh, we just ask that um, that you administer to our hearts right now. And Lord, I know that there are many of us that are just really going through it right now. Lord, there's many of us that are just like Paul, overwhelmed with suffering. It's more than we can handle. It's more than we can bear. We feel like a a pack animal just with its legs spread out can't get up. Just completely overburdened. And Lord, maybe we've been fighting against it. Lord, maybe we've been trying to to do this thing on our own. And God, I pray right now that you would just release that that burden. Maybe not the suffering, Lord, but the burden of it, the trying to do it on our own. That we would just give it to you, that we would rely upon you, that we would trust in you. Lord, because that's the very thing you're wanting to teach us. And Lord, maybe we've been fighting against it and we've just been sort of going through it over and over again. So that passing through the valley of suffering, we're, we're permanently camped. Lord, you want to bring us through. You want to teach us the things that you want us to learn. And 
and bring us out the other side. So Lord, even now as we're just thinking about these things, Lord, we just give them to you. Lord, we want to be open to whatever it is you want to teach us. Forgive us, Lord, for complaining and murmuring. Forgive us for acting as if you don't love us anymore because of what we're going through. Forgive us, Lord, for not being in the Word and not being in prayer because we've just given up. Lord, the very thing that you were trying to do, which is to draw us unto yourself, God, we've allowed the enemy to to take that and, and make it make us go away from you. Lord, you wanted to make us usable with our suffering and, and yet we've not been allowing you to do that. We've quit ministry. We've determined that we don't want to serve you because it's too hard. Lord, help us to learn the lessons that you want us to learn in our suffering. Help us to embrace it, to trust you. And Lord, as we sing this song, I pray that you would just minister to our hearts, God, that we could just give these things to you right now.
Father, wrap us in your arms of love. God, we want to sense your presence. God, just make us so aware of how much you care about us. Lord, you have our best intentions in mind. 